Well, good morning to all of you here. Uh, and you are so faithful in enduring these last few weeks that I've had to teach. So God bless you. Uh, let us open up this uh, time together with uh, prayers. We offer it up to our God. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful uh, for your goodness and faithfulness uh, as we've sung in each of these songs. Um, you're a good father. Um, we've talked about just how you are enough. And Lord, I just pray that those would be things that resonate with us this morning. Uh, God, especially that peace, you are a good father. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that we don't just say these words, but that we actually experience your goodness to us and experience it and take stock of it in those moments where we feel like you aren't enough or you, you don't seem good. But that, God, we can come back to these truths based on your word, that despite our circumstances, despite our unmet expectations, that you are a God who does not change. You are good yesterday, today, forever. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning as we talk about some of the things as we unpack uh, what it means to be a child of God. Lord, I pray you'd open our hearts to receive what it is you want us to receive. And God, I just pray that you would speak. Lord, draw near to us as we draw near to you. And we lift up this time together uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, or if you haven't, let me just catch you and bring you up to speed. Uh, we, we started this, this journey that I wasn't fully aware of when I set out to do this series. When Bill uh, asked me months ago, uh, do I want to preach in the summer? And I, for some reason, said, oh, sure, I'll do four weeks in a row without any game plan whatsoever about how those four weeks are going to unfold. And then as uh, God met me in various moments throughout the interim, interim in between when I said I'd do it and now, uh, he just sort of led me onto this journey of understanding his heart. Um, and I think for this morning, especially as we unpack what we're going to unpack, it is so crucial to go back to some of those truths and recognize if we want to know what it means to be a child of God, we first have to know what the heart of God is like towards us. If your view of God is a God who is judgmental and harsh and cruel, then your position perhaps in wanting to be a child is not necessarily something you want to be a part of. If God is a harsh taskmaster, why would any of us draw ourselves into that and so we first have to come to those crucial truths. And we unpacked that uh, our first week when we, we met on Father's Day. And we talked about the heart of the Father. You can't understand what it means to be a child of God without first knowing who the Father is. We don't even have access to calling him Father without first becoming his children. And so we unpacked that. And we unpacked last week what it, what it means when we talk about the Son. What is the heart of the Son? And we talked about how Christ... Uh, as well as the Father, together are not harsh with us. We unpack that, that passage where he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And he it talks about this yoke that he wants us to bear, but it's not really a yoke at all because he helps us carry it. And this is the heart of the Father, and this is the heart of the Son for you and for me. And it is so crucial that we understand these things because, as we are going to be talking about today, it helps us better understand our own identity in this thing called the family of God. I love being a dad uh, most days. <laughs> there are days where I'm like, this is really tough. And if you're a parent, you know. And if you're a kid, stop it. <laughs> but I love it. But with two kids, uh, I focus so much on my role as dad. 
I'm focused majority of the time setting the rules or expectations, creating the boundary lines so they know where they are, so they're not running into danger or any. I, I just want to keep them safe and all the things that come with that. And I forget most days what it's like to be them, to see the world through their eyes, the simplicity, the carefree nature. And what blows me away is the level of trust that they put in me. There have been many occasions uh, when standing sort of at the, the foot of the steps and Ellie is on the landing just above and I'm coming down and she'll say, Daddy. And I'll look around and she'll say, Catch me. And I'll look and I'll extend my arms and I say, Okay, jump. And she does it without... So sometimes there's hesitation because as she grew up, she used to jump off from like the second step. And as she got older, she'd work her way up to the point where now she's jumping off from the landing, which is like eight or nine steps up. And so she's jumping up. But when she was on there that first time, she hesitated. But when she jumped from that landing and I caught her the first time, from that point on, she doesn't hesitate at all. She knows. And it's wild to me because she'll leap out into my arms. And the level of faith that somehow I just won't change my mind mid-air and just not catch her. I, I don't feel like it anymore. You know, arm's a little sore. I know you jump, but like, sorry. And letting her, I wouldn't do that. She jumps and knows with certainty, with absolute certainty that I will catch her. Why? Well, primarily she knows I'm not a monster. I would not say, okay, jump, let her jump, and then move to the side and let her break herself on the floor. She knows that. But more significantly than that, she knows my heart. She knows that as her dad, I love her immensely. She doesn't question that. I couldn't imagine doing anything else but catching her. The moment she jumps out to me. And it's a beautiful thing when you can take that step back as an adult and watch how children operate in this way. Sure, watch them for any period of time. They will make messes. They will make mistakes. They will push boundary lines. They will do things any day, every day to drive us bonkers. Not intentionally, but the reasons aren't because they wake up in the morning and ask themselves the question, how can I make mommy and daddy go crazy today? That is not the question children wake up with. How can I push the lines and just really, really irritate them today? I would just really love to see how far I can take this. Kids do not wake up. Some days where I'm like, are you doing this on purpose? Like, this is, this is insane. But kids do not wake up with that disposition. That's not their heart. At a young age, boundaries are tested. Boundaries are pushed. Where's the line? Will you still love me if I do this? Will I still belong if I make this mistake or do this thing? These are the internal questions. Maybe they're not wording them in quite that way, but these are the inner things, the thought life of children when they push the boundary lines. Will I still be accepted? And there's an innocence there. The heart of a child yearns for a sense of safety, belonging, stability, and love. And when I look back, each and every single one of us, no matter how old you are, you could be 100 years old, you could be five. Every single one of us at, our, at some point in our lives were like that. We longed for stability, security, belonging, love. Many of us still do. And then we sadly adult and we forget what that's like. We get caught up in the rhythms of life. Got to get to work, got to make the money, got to pay the bills. And we forget the innocence of what it means to be like a child. 
And when I talk about this, I am not inferring or saying things in the sense that we need to go back and be kids without a worry in the world. No, you're an adult now, so you gotta, you got to take the responsibility that comes with that. But with each passing year, we grow. There comes a maturity and a healthy independence, which are all good things. It's good to be independent. But the unfortunate side to this, however, is that we can develop a cynical, worry-filled heart. Hearts that lose the sense of awe and wonder and the simplicity as our hearts continue to become calloused with each passing difficulty that comes our way throughout the years. A broken relationship, perhaps. A difficult upbringing. Maybe you had a harsh mother or father. Various traumas and brokenness that we experience, all of us experience in our lives. No one comes out of this life unscathed. We all experience the bumps and the bruises of growing up, physically speaking, and spiritually and emotionally. Each moment we experience these things, it's shifting our hearts further away from the child we once were. And when I think about that, I'm like, man, that sounds really sad. (laughs) And rightfully so. This life we all live has a way, as I've said, of shaking us down and and. And maybe we respond in some ways that are healthy, but some some ways we respond uniquely to the situation presented to us. But it's an interesting thing that as we take a look at today's passage, we see that our hearts, while affected by sin and brokenness, are not beyond repair. And even more than that, we can actually in some ways recapture what it means to live our lives with the heart of a child. Today we can hear statements, and there's no shortage, just follow your heart. You want to make a decision? Just trust your heart. Follow it. It can't do you any wrong. And these are the things we hear, but God's word shocks us out of this view by reminding us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yikes. (laughs) That is not the sort of compass for life that I want to follow or let alone put really big decisions and weigh them on that. If my heart is deceitful above all things, I can't trust it. To quote pastor and author Dane C. Orland, he says, quote, the heart in biblical terms is not part of who we are, but the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines us and directs us. The heart is a matter of life. It is what makes us the human being each of us is. The heart drives all we do. It is who we are, unquote. That may seem like a rather strong statement, but when I think you unpack scripture from beginning to end, not just pickpocketing verses perhaps, but when you unpack it as a whole, it makes a bit more sense. God has given us a brain to think and process, but that is not the only part that concerns him. He is very much so holistic with us. And his desire for us to love him in the way that he he wants us to and calls us to, we read in Deuteronomy 6, 5, that we are to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And if you go to Matthew and Luke, they add with all of our mind in the New Testament. All our heart. Jeremiah 31 mentions this as well when speaking with God. He is told that God's desire is to put my law within them or in their minds, as some translations write, and I will write it on their hearts. See, God is not interested in just the mental capacity, but he's interested in the expansion of our heart, primarily that it is softened towards him and is drawn to him. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 43 to 45 captures this idea for us when speaking of a tree. It says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his what? His heart. His heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. The heart is, as Ortland put it earlier, it is what drives us in what we do. And you can go back to the beginning. Since the beginning of Scripture, the reality presented to us is that our hearts at one time were good, were pure, and then became stained and unholy. Picture Adam and Eve in the garden. If you can just bring yourself into that, just imagining the beauty and the simplicity of that point in human existence. Just the level of admiration for the world around them. The beauty that they were ushered into as God created all these things and said, man and woman, this is for you. Be fruitful, multiply. This is your responsibility. Take care of these things. And you can just imagine in the garden that childlike awe and wonder that they were walking in each and every day. And you can picture their relationship with God. When you, when you open those early pages of, of God's relationship with mankind, it says he walked with them, talked with them. They had this amazing, ongoing, day-to-day relationship with God. They were indeed carefree secure and they enjoyed the provisions of god moment by moment then the snake comes along and everything unravels now they are insecure oh we feel naked Uh, let's and they run they hide they're insecure fearful they're guilt-ridden there this is probably this is the first moment where they open their eyes and realize something feels terribly wrong they are unsafe And this is especially more so as they have the hard conversation with God as he walks in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And they have this this conversation where Adam and Eve fess up and said, well, I did. Well, she made me do it, and that's a whole other thing. But the hard thing was that because of that awful moment, making a decision for the wrong reasons, God has to send them out. They lose out on the safety net of that experience in the garden. Now to walk outside of the garden with all the sin-stained brokenness that the world was now showing them. Adam and Eve felt the physical and spiritual effects of their sinful decision, and it has been passed down to us. Our hearts are in a constant wrestling to this very day. Now, thankfully, we have a rescuer who redeems, restores, and saves. Christ comes down to us from newborn to child to youth to adulthood experience. He experienced it from all the way from birth to the cross. And he experiences our humanity. But through the cross, he opens the way for our hearts to be made new. He sets in motion what God writes in Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
In other words, God is going to take the hardness of heart that sin has brought us through with all the hardships that come with that. Just read the history of Israel from the Old Testament. Grueling, hard, tough stuff that they're having to go through physically. But their hearts were not always softened to the things that God was doing for them. Complacent, untrusting, all of those things that come with their relationship. Their hearts were not always drawn near to God in the way that he longed for them. But he promises them, I will remove that heart from you and replace it with a heart of flesh. How does this begin? I want us to listen to the words of Christ as we unpack today's passage, which is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. And this is what it says. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now before I unpack this thing, uh, I just want to say first off that rebuke piece. uh, I want to say I am so grateful for youth leaders who support our ministry and do not do this. When students come into this building, we have youth leaders who are faithful, loving, compassionate, who say, come, come. If you see a youth leader, this is just a sidebar. If you see a youth leader, and if you don't know who they are, come ask me. I'll tell you and point them out to you. But if you see anyone who is working with youth, if you see youth working with the very children right now as we speak, you go thank them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. They are helping the kingdom grow as students right now are teaching children the word of God. As they come into this place on Fridays and Wednesday nights and hear from the word of God as youth leaders willingly serve and come alongside them. Go thank them for doing such hard, amazing work. Because they are doing things that are close to the heart of Christ. They are loving children the way Jesus loves children. Sidebar thing, just encourage you, go thank them for their work. A crucial question we have to ask ourselves after reading this passage uh, stems from verse 15. How do we receive the kingdom of God like a child? It starts with birth. I mean, like anything, physically speaking, you are born into this world and you come into this world naked and weak, crying, needy, dependent. And you were born to this. And when, when we get to the third chapter in the Gospel of John, Jesus has this secret nighttime meeting with a man whose name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and we can kind of surmise that through this interaction they're having, he's not so, um, not so you know, uh, uh, excited. For, well, maybe he's excited, but he's, he's approaching this meeting with a little bit of reservation. He's coming at nighttime. It's not usually the time you meet. He's doing it in secret. He doesn't want people to see that he's meeting with Jesus. And he's perhaps having this out of fear of being associated with him. But his curiosity cannot stop him. He is curious about what he has seen this Jesus do. He is curious about what this Jesus is saying and teaching. And so he comes to this meeting investigating. And as he meets Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, being typical in Jesus' fashion, gets to the heart of the matter. 
He, he bypasses that, that statement that Nicodemus has said, and he responds in this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Has nothing to do with what Nicodemus says. We know you're a teacher, and we know you're doing... In, in Nicodemus's view, he's trying to, who are you? And Jesus goes past it as, truly I say to you, unless you are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. He's interested, he's not interested, sorry, in confirming Nicodemus's statement at this moment. He's going beyond theological assessments or assumptions. And this throws Nicodemus off, and rightfully so, because I think it would do that to any of us in this situation. Sorry, sorry what? Can you repeat, what are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus, that makes no... What do you mean born again? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, thank God that Jesus doesn't confirm this for him as all mothers sigh a relief as if childbirth the first time isn't hard enough. No, no, Nicodemus, that is not what I am talking about at all. That is ridiculous. No, and Jesus passes once more beyond the physical terms to get to the heart of spiritual things. He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus came investigating Jesus to see who he really is, but Jesus is after his heart. And of course, he is more interested in that, just simply persuading Nicodemus that he is more than a teacher. Jesus could have said, you're right, I'm more than a rabbi, I'm more than this teacher that you've come to me making these statements by. I'm actually the Messiah. Uh, Let me open you on the secret. I am the son of God. And Jesus doesn't even address that at all. He doesn't reference it. Nicodemus is still confused after these statements, and so Jesus begins to tell him plainly and clearly. It says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? I mean, when you think of a Pharisee, trained in the religious rites and experiences that one would, he knows the law, he knows the word of God, he knows it well. And Jesus said, Are you a teacher, and you still can't handle these things that I'm bringing to your attention? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next passages go on to say, probably the most famous of the many passages in the Bible, for God so loved the world, John 3.16. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that his presuppositions or assumptions about God maybe need to take a shift. You're so focused on what is written physically speaking, God is interested in the heart. This goes to the deeper question of what it means to truly live. Jesus is not interested in simply being Nicodemus' teacher. He's pointing him to a savior. And despite the world's views and ideas, of which there are many, on how one gets to heaven, books upon books, assumptions upon assumptions, pathways upon pathways, here is the way to get to heaven 
But Jesus comes along and he says, no. He speaks of eternal life as being only through the Son. Not the law, not good works, not religion. Doing these things does nothing. Nicodemus had all these things going. He knew the law. I suppose he probably was doing, as the law called him to, the good works that follow obedience of the law. And he was surely following the religious experiences of being in Judaism. He had all those ducks lined in a row. But Jesus says, that is not enough. It's not enough that you know the law. It's not enough that you practice the law. And it's certainly not enough that you are, maybe in your own estimation, good. None of these things matters. None of them counts for anything except the fact that to get to this place that we all long to, heaven, the only way to attain it is through the Son. Later on in John 14, he goes on to say explicitly, there is no other, I mean, he cannot paint this any more clear for us when we read the Gospels. In John 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can be a child of God. In other words, this statement, no one can be a child of God and have the right to call him father except through me. We have to go through the son to have access to the father. To receive the kingdom of child of God as a child requires being born again. Many of which I assume you have experienced. Have you been born again? Or have you made the mental ascent, thinking I've done the things I need to do? I go to church, I pray, I do good things, I give, I give generously. Maybe you do all these things, but are you born again? Have you put your life in the hands of the Son and said, it is in you I trust and put all things, faith, hope, all of these, I trust in you. And beyond that, I repent and acknowledge that I am not fully whole. I am broken. I am stained by the sin. And we come repentant, knowing fully well that through the cross we are received. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and a faith that goes beyond the brain. He's wanting to write things on our heart. We need more than a mental ascent if we are going to make it to heaven. We need to ascend to the hill of Calvary, to the cross of Jesus Christ, and repent of our sinfulness and trade that sin-stained life, that heart, and lay it down at the cross and take up the new life Jesus offers us. And what is that new life? Yes, I get to go to heaven. Yeah, that's a great privilege, but that's not why Jesus died for you. It is a benefit, to be sure, but what Jesus offers us is way more than that. He gives us the privilege of being called sons and daughters. You are a child of God. That is what he entered into when he came in. The incarnation, God became man to experience what we experienced, to live as we lived, so that in his death and resurrection, we can live as he lived. And beyond that, dwell and be in relationship. John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does this mean for us? Not only are we born again, but the beautiful word in that statement is this, this right to become children of God, it carries with it the term adoption. 
We are adopted into the family of God. Then God calls us his children, his sons, his daughters. This is a difficult thing to watch in our culture. Take a look at the foster system. Take a look at the adoption system. It is incredibly frustrating to watch. There are some beautiful elements of it, but it is an incredibly frustrating thing to watch. The broken way it functions. When, when you watch certain movies, you can feel children who are adopted take on this position of feeling as if they're second rate in the family. They've just been brought into the home, and you see this in movies, but it happens certainly in real time. You see the challenges and struggles of that dynamic, and maybe even hurtful comments where other children in the family, the the firstborn, you know, the born into you naturally, would say things like, you're not really one of us. You're here, but you're you're adopted. Like, you, you weren't one of us at the beginning. And adoption can carry with it this, this sort of stained experience. It's supposed to be a beautiful thing. You're welcomed in. You're one of us in the most beautiful sense. But it can come with this sense of, I, I, know, I, I, I know I'm a dog, but I just don't really feel like I belong. I have your name on this thing, but I just don't really feel. What a tragedy that in the hearts of children looking to belong and be accepted to the point where they even welcomed into the home all across our world in these moments, they are still left with questions like, am I even home? Do I belong? They've been brought in, but they don't feel. With God, this is, a nev- this is never, ever, ever a question we have to raise. And yet, for some reason, many of us do all throughout our faith journey. Does God truly accept me? Do I belong in this family? Where do I even fit in in all of this? I'm not good at anything. I don't have, I'm not, we can fill in the blanks with all these things that we feel like we fall short in. On and on, we wrestle with our identity as children of God. You see, adoption in the Greco-Roman world, the time of Paul and the time of Christ, that day saw adoption as a means to an end. If you were a family, a husband and a wife, and you couldn't have offspring, as a father, your, your first and foremost thought is, how is my legacy, how is my lineage going to carry on? Who is going to carry on the family name? We have no sons to speak of. And being a son was incredibly sought after. It was to the point where in one of the early writings, I can't remember exactly, I just remember reading it the other day, but there was a writing between a husband and a wife and the wife was pregnant and the husband was far off and he was writing to his wife and said, if you have a daughter, kill it. I want a son. A sought after thing. Adoption wasn't a loving transaction in that day and age. In most cases, a father would take on a son only because the son was considered an ideal fit. A father would look for certain qualities and characteristics. If the expectations weren't met, you wouldn't be adopted. Not so in God's kingdom. One need only look at the list of disciples and see these 12 men, 11 of whom Jesus would later on to call brothers... He would go on to call these men brothers, and Christ, when looking around for who he was going to call to follow him, wasn't looking for what we as human beings would consider good candidates. He called some fishermen, a tax collector, a political zealot, some regular average Joe-type people, and a traitor. He called 
each of them by name, come follow me. Where we perhaps, if you go back to the Old Testament, when God is calling Samuel to, to anoint the next king of Israel, he sends him to the house of, of David, his father. And, and in that situation, Samuel is going through the list of all of the sons of, of Jesse. And he's going, is this the one, Lord? No, not this one. And each person he sings, Samuel thinks, this surely is the next. He's strong. He looks beautiful. He's handsome. He, looks, he just looks like a mighty man, a mighty man of valor. And God continues to show him through the list, no, not him, not him, not him. Not, and he goes through the whole list to the point where Samuel's like, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Yeah, I got one more. He's out back taking care of the sheep. But like, as far as David's relationship with his father is concerned, his father had already written him off. He's just a shepherd. He's like, nothing special about him. And when David comes in that moment, God says he's the one. For God does not look at outward appearance. But he looks where? To the heart. And he picks a humble shepherd in the man of David. Acknowledging that we are adopted into the family of God is incredibly significant. We have to take our understanding of what adoption means from the world's context, expectations, and terminology and shift it and transition it into what God views that word to be. Why is it significant? There's a lot of reasons. Whole books have been written on on the privileges and experiences we have being adopted into this family of God. But I want to give three quick reasons. The first is this. One of the significant things about being adopted in the family of God is that very thing. We are now brought in to family. As such, we experience the freedoms and liberties of being a child of the king. We call God our Father, and as our Father, we are taken care of by Him because, as our Father, He loves us immensely. On top of that, we are blessed to be brought into a family. None of us does this thing called faith alone. We are part of what? The body of Christ, the family of God. You don't do this Christian journey on your own. And if you are, I would just encourage you to reflect upon what the Bible has to say about community. You cannot do this alone, and nor should you. It is a beautiful thing that we are brought into when God brings us into this family and says, you carry each other's burdens. When one part suffers, the whole part suffers. We are in this together, and this is the family that we are brought into. And yes, church is messy. It's human beings. We're broken. We're awkward. We say things we shouldn't. We do things we shouldn't. But the beautiful thing is when we come back to this word adoption, it doesn't matter what you've done or said, so long as you come to the cross repentant of what those things are. But you are, without a doubt, a child of the king. We belong, all of us, together to this family. The second thing is we have access to the throne. You see, there's, there's philosophical views that God is so far removed, he is so high above that he takes no care whatsoever in the comings and goings of people, doesn't burden himself with their burdens, does not care. They're just simply human beings. These are some philosophical views held when people ask the question, what is God like? Not the God of the Bible specifically, but God generally speaking. And many hold this view. God just is unconcerned. He's unmoved. But the God that the scripture paints and shows us and reveals to us through Christ 
is a father who takes incredible concern. See, God is not a God who just does lip service. Oh, I love these people. I hope they surely know it. God proved it to us when he sent his son. Did God have to tell his son, go and die for them? No. Did we deserve it? No. And yet, because of his great love for us, while we were still sinners, he dies for us. With God as Father, we could take the posture in our lives that, and I hear this all the time when I'm, when I'm teaching students, like, God doesn't care about my prayers. Like, what, do, surely, like, why would he care if I do well on a test? Why would he care if I lift that thing up to me? God, he's too busy for me. He's, he's too busy listening to the prayers of pastors and maybe super Christians. Why would he care about me? I hear it more often, and it's a hard thing. Because when we're adopted, we all have equal access to the Father. No one has a greater access to God. No one has a lesser access to God. We are all on equal playing field. We can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, as the author of Hebrews writes. Jesus himself opened that way for us to have access to the Father. And not only access, as as I said, as Hebrews tells us, but this access says we can boldly Approach. We don't have to be hesitant or, oh God, you know, I'm just, why would he care? Jesus says, boldly approach the throne. This is your father. He wants to give you good things. He wants to. Why? Because we can approach the throne with, with boldness and confidence so that what? We may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We can sit at the foot of the father and like a good father, he stoops down to listen to the needs of his children. No matter how great or small you think your needs are, God is incredibly interested in what those needs are because your needs are the ones he wants to show you that he can meet. We have access to the throne. Third and lastly, as adopted children, we are granted an inheritance. Listen to what Romans 8, 15, 17 says. It says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. In other translations, it says to share in his glory. Not only is our inheritance through Christ salvation and eternal life, but what an amazing thing that Christ, after his death and resurrection, takes this ragtag group of human beings, broken, messy, and says, you will share in my glory. (laughs) Do we deserve that? Absolutely not. But because we have been adopted as children, God doesn't see us as we see ourselves. When you put your faith in Christ, when he looks at you, he sees the son. You, as an adopted child of God, have been brought into family. You have access to the father and you have this amazing, beautiful inheritance awaiting you. As children of God, these are amazing privileges And we all await an inheritance that doesn't fade or perish, but one that lasts forever. 
These are some amazing privileges for us who feel unworthy or that, you know, I'm part of this thing called the body of Christ or family of God, but like, I'm not as in maybe perhaps as other people are. Some people are further along this journey. They're like more in the family than I am. No, no, that is not what the Bible teaches and that is theologically inaccurate. You are adopted and you are a child of the king as equal as anyone. You do not have to scramble and clamber and climb and work for the heart of God to love you. He already does. So how do we live with the heart of a child then? Because life has burdened us, it's broken us, and it's made things messy. But how do we live? And I would say there are two things uh, that I'll say very quickly. The first thing is we need to acknowledge this one thing. Living with the heart of a child takes incredible humility. Why? Because children are incredibly dependent. If you have kids, you know this. Daddy, can you make me food? Daddy, can you drive me to my friend's house? Daddy, can you help me? Daddy, daddy, daddy. And the list on and on and on. Every day, all the day, multiple times a day for the same thing. Every day, 365. And where maybe we as human beings can get overwhelmed by this, God does not. Oh, not this again. I already did that. I just wiped you. Oh. God does not get burdened by our needs but on our end it takes a humble heart to recognize just how much we need god in our lives to quote jerry bridges from his book the blessings of humility he writes this quote in the greco-roman world humility was a despised trait they viewed it as a sign of weakness And our culture today is no different from that world of 2,000 years ago. We may even admire humility in someone else, but we have little desire to practice it ourselves. Unquote. We need to absolutely lay down any notions of independence or pride down at the cross. And recognize we are not our own saviors. We cannot conjure up goodness and holiness in our lives by merit alone. Jesus already did that for us. And even beyond that, we are not even our own when we are brought in this family of God. It says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. We must trade away our need to control, to be in charge, and emulate children who simply look up and say, Daddy, help. Daddy, fix. And it sounds weird. To, to talk to God in this, in this sense of having the posture of a child. But look at any child that looks up to their mom or their dad and holds out their arms and says, I need you. That is the posture that Jesus says we need to take. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, that is the posture. Humility and dependence. The heart of a child depends upon the heart of the father. The second thing we need is trust. Not only are we dependent, but we don't know all things, nor should we ever pretend that we know what's going to happen. We don't know what tomorrow brings, let alone the next 10 minutes, and hopefully I will be done speaking. We don't know. And for the sake of time, I just want to read Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 33 over you. I want, to, I want you to hear these words, because these are the very words of Christ to you, for you. Listen to what he has to say. 
Matthew 6, 25 and on. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, key word there, heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, What will we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. My daughter never wakes up saying, Oh, what are we going to do? Where's the food? How clothes will I wear? Daddy, whatever will we do? She doesn't take that. She knows. She knows there's food. She knows there's clothes. She knows there's security. Why? Because she knows she's loved. She knows she's in a home where we take care of her. As a child of the king, you can trust his heart because he is good and loves to give you the things you need. We need not worry or wonder where our help comes from. He is our gracious, gift-giving, loving father. The heart of a child trusts the heart of the father. I want to close with this. Lastly, if all these things, trust and and humility, uh, aren't enough for you, children should never have to wonder if they are loved. It's an interesting thing when you observe adult relationships where you hear one one or the other ask, do you love me? Or, Or put it another way, why? Why do you love me? Well-intentioned questions, perhaps, or maybe they're fishing for something. Why do you love me? But children rarely, if ever, ask that question because they think they are not loved. My kids wake up each day knowing I'm daddy and that I absolutely adore them. They know they are loved. Why? Not simply because I have told them daily, multiple times a day, but I show them, I serve them, I give them good things. I don't withhold praise when praise is due. I don't neglect them unless I'm writing a sermon. They know they're secure in my family because I assure them every day. Ellie doesn't have a go bag at the ready in case one day she wakes up and says, oh, daddy was really mad at me. He must not love me anymore. I guess it's time to leave. That would be awful. She's secure in her status as my daughter, and she's secure in knowing how much I love her. The heart of a child knows the heart of the father who loves them. How? Because he has shown us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And it is to this end we move towards the table where we celebrate that very thing. So, Pastor Jacques, come lead us to the table.